May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. When I was a high school student, I discovered the radio station coming from the University of Manitoba, CJUM. It was the only radio station that played any music outside of the mainstream. And in an era when disco ruled the pop airwaves, it was, for me, a breath of fresh air. My alarm clock was set for 6.50 a.m., which gave me 10 minutes to lie in bed and listen to a song or two before I had to get myself into high gear to get ready and be out the door for 7.30. It was perhaps the most cherished 10 minutes of my day. One morning in late 1977, I was jolted awake by sounds like nothing I'd ever heard before. It was angry, raw, grating, loud music from a brand new record by an English band called The Sex Pistols. God save the queen, her fascist regime, sneered the vocalist. God save the Queen, she ain't no human being. There's no future in England's dreaming. Don't be told what you want. Don't be told what you need. There's no future, no future, no future for you. Now, part of me wanted to slam my hand down on that radio and shut off the noise. But it was kind of like driving by a car wreck. I couldn't not keep listening. Paul McCartney would later describe the punk movement as being like the blast of rusty water that flows out of a tap after it's been turned off for too long. The world of popular music in the 70s had been languishing, the vital creative tap off for too long, and punk was like the clearing of the pipes that signaled that music was going to become vital again. It's a pretty apt image, actually, and I can tell you this. The music that I heard that morning in 1977 was all full of rust, dirt, and sediment. It was a hopeless, futureless vision of what it meant to be coming of age in the England of the late 1970s, a complete rejection of all the idealism of the hippie 60s. No future. No future for you, no future for me, no future. That's how the snarling song ends. The words, the sounds, the rawness, the anger, all apparently had a strangely cathartic effect for poor kids in the East End of London, but also for rich kids in those London suburbs. They were afraid already that there was no future, and somebody was finally saying it. The story, though, of that band gets rather more despairing. After a train wreck of an American tour, the band more or less self-destructed, with the vocalist Johnny Rotten, so named apparently for the condition of his teeth, quitting and the bassist Sid Vicious dying of a heroin overdose while still under suspicion in the stabbing death of his girlfriend. And for all that that band had been embraced by this sort of disenfranchised English youth 
as giving voice to their experience of being lost and angry and without a compass. In many respects, the Sex Pistols had been the invention of their manager, Malcolm McLaren, a canny creator of hype and publicity. No future, indeed. Now, as he brings his song to a close, the writer of Psalm 88, which we heard read aloud tonight, does something that's quite astonishing and has a kind of a punk-like cathartic power almost. That writer refuses to resolve his prayer into any affirmation of hope, into any proclamation of a future. In fact, he's frightened he has no future. Unlike most of the other psalms of lament, this writer will affirm nothing hope-filled. And unlike those psalmists who cry out for justice, cry out that vengeance be done on the enemies, God's justice be brought to bear on those who have shamed Israel, this writer can't go there either. He can say only this, You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. Darkness is my only companion. You have caused this, O God. You are the one responsible for the mess I'm in. I'm as good as dead, this psalmist cries, like those forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. I'm no good to anyone here, O Lord, and in death I will have no voice to praise you. The writer's at least suggesting that once he's dead, God will be able to do nothing for him. Are your wonders known in the darkness, the psalmist asks, your saving help in the land of forgetfulness? Those questions are just left hanging. But his fear is that no, once he's in the grave, God can no longer be heard. He has no future. The psalmist's agony is that while he keeps expressing this all to God, while he keeps praying it all, God remains silent. In their commentary on this psalm, Walter Brueggemann and Bellinger note how the silence of God properly evokes not explanation, but a blend of patient waiting and impatient demand. God is not excused. God's silence is not justified or explained away. It's not like in the book of Job, where much of the book has these three so-called comforters madly trying to explain Job's pain away and to justify God's apparent silence to Job. There's none of that. There's no word of even false comfort here. Instead, this psalmist summons all the patience he has to keep praying, often in words of impatient demand. I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Wretched and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am desperate. 
Now what's being expressed here is one writer's honest and urgent cry to the God who is our freely covenanted partner in an ongoing relationship and not, to again quote Brueggemann and Bellinger, not a wishing well or an automaton that delivers on demand. God is a covenant partner, not a magic machine who always answers. At the very least, these commentators say, we may take this psalm as attestation of Israel's candor about God and before God. And yet the psalm also attests that unanswered, unanswered prayer does not lead to lack of faith or silence or resignation. It leads rather to more urgent, vigorous petition, for Israel has no alternate source of help. In other words, no matter how bad this writer's experience is, he continues to say it in prayer. No matter how he has lost hope, no matter the degree to which he believes there is no future, he says it, he prays it, he has no alternate. Something of the same was given expression in the spirituals of the black church, the slave church, a community that knew what it was to live constantly in the face of violence and of death. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. A long way from home goes one of the classic spirituals. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, and that's not just a metaphor either. Because it was common practice for slave children to be taken from their mothers and sold to other slave owners. They knew what it was like to be a motherless child. Sometimes I feel that lost, and sometimes I feel like the child of a God long absent. And like the psalmist, rather than just feeling those things... The slave church sang about them. And in the singing, they could begin to discover that, well, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, other times I don't. And in so many versions of this spiritual, a second verse is then sung. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone, way up into heavenly land. Now that's a loaded verse. In that... There's at least two ways in which it can be sung. Whereas the writer of Psalm 88 feared that death would forever cut him off from God. He wasn't confident that there was anything beyond the grave. Those slave Christians saw death as the great and final liberator. By which they'd finally be fully home in the kingdom of God. Free at last. And in the coded tradition of the spirituals, it also meant the possibility of escape, of riding the Underground Railroad all the way up to the freedom of the northern states. Yet before that church can dream those dreams, the harder truth has to be told. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, which isn't all that different from my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol, to the place of the dead. The passage we then heard read aloud from the Gospel according to John, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And maybe that should be heard as the most powerful counterstatement or countermessage to the words offered by the writer of Psalm 88. Maybe. In the Gospel passage, Jesus' declaration is immediately followed by a rather predictably skeptical challenge by the Pharisees. You're testifying on your own behalf, they say. Your testimony is invalid. We who number ourselves as disciples of Jesus might want to ask him a different question. We affirm, Lord, that you are the light of the world. We say it all the time in different ways in our worship. That you have established with us new covenantal relationship. We are your people. Why then do some of us still have such a hard time seeing that light, at least at some points in our lives? Why are there so many of us for whom those words in Psalm 88 may tell a deep truth about our experience? Why, like the psalmist, do some of us here still find nighttime such a difficult time, seemingly deprived even of the gift of sleep? Why do we sometimes hear only silence from you, O Lord, when we crave to hear your voice and see your light? I'm not even going to attempt to answer all of those questions or to explain it all away. That would be irresponsible. Rather, I just need to name it. It's the reality. And then to acknowledge the inclusion of Psalm 88 in our Psalter, a bold inclusion by a people of faith if there ever was one. I want to acknowledge that psalm as a gift to anyone who has ever felt hope slipping away, anyone who has ever felt tempted to think, no future. This psalmist gives us cathartic words that not only validate the reality of those empty spaces in our lives, but also offer us a kind of speech that might be a necessary step in our ongoing covenantal partnership with the one who is indeed the light of the world, even, or maybe especially, when we have trouble seeing that light, making our way out of dark places. Over this season of Lent, I've been offering up these psalms week by week by week, psalms of tears or of vengeance or of lament or, or, or. This one tonight, I do believe, is the toughest, most truthful in many ways, hardest of the psalms, but receive it as a gift. Receive it as a gift for those times when the light's hard to see. And know that a writer all those hundreds and thousands of years ago shared your experience and left us with this great heritage. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.